the sacrifice was soaking wet. So was the wood on which it had been placed. The crowd had fallen quiet, watching expectantly. And then suddenly, Elijah raises his voice and says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then, something resembling a nuclear explosion. The sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, the water were vaporized in a blinding instant. And that's what many of us think prayer is all about. But it isn't. Shortly afterwards, Elijah goes higher up the mountain with his servant. I'm going to pray for rain, says Elijah. <laughs> this should be good, thinks his servant, packing his umbrella. And there Elijah bows to the ground, head between knees, and he starts praying. And the servant is there and he's looking and to his amazement, nothing. Go up to the top peak, says Elijah. Look out for clouds. <laughs> Great, says the servant. I was obviously looking in the wrong direction. So off he goes. And he looks. And he comes back down to Elijah for the first time. And he says, nothing. I'm still praying, says Elijah. Look again. He comes back for the second time. Nothing. I'm still praying, says Elijah. Look again. He comes back for the third time. Nothing. I'm still praying, says Elijah. Look again. He comes back for the fourth time. Nothing. I'm still praying, says Elijah. Look again. He comes back for the fifth time. Nothing. I'm still praying, says Elijah. Look again. He comes back for the sixth time. Nothing. I'm still praying, says Elijah. Look again. He comes back for the seventh time. Well, there's a tiny cloud. That's it, says Elijah. God's answered, and there's going to be a deluge. And there was. And many of us think that's what prayer isn't. But it is. And we're going to be focusing this morning on the necessity for us to keep on praying, to persevere, to pray continually. And we're going to be looking at this under three headings. First of all, Bible commands tell us. Bible commands tell us. Luke 11 is one of the great chapters about prayer. 
And in it, Jesus responds to the disciples' request to teach them how to pray. And we all know about the Lord's Prayer, that wonderful prayer, that model prayer that we prayed earlier together, our Father who art in heaven. Uh, some of us may have been saying it according to our AV upbringings. Others of it were saying to more modernized versions. But it's the Lord's Prayer. We're familiar with it. We have memorized it. But the point is this. The lesson on prayer doesn't finish in Luke 11 as soon as we come to the Amen. Jesus continues teaching about prayer. And many of us have failed to realize that what follows is as important a part of prayer as that which went before. Let me read it to you. Luke 11, verse 5, 8. This is verses 5 to 8. This is how it continues. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And, and that's a story that would have been understood then. And it's a story that we can relate to Today, you know, we're in bed. The baby at long last has stopped crying and fallen asleep next to us. And we're shattered. And then suddenly the doorbell goes. And a voice comes booming through the letterbox. Are you asleep? And we recognize who it is. It's our, our good friend. I need your help. Friends have unexpectedly arrived from far away and I need to give them some food, but we weren't due to go to Little until tomorrow and there's nothing in the cupboards, nothing in the fridge, nothing in the freezer. Can you give me some food? Well, what's your answer? Go away, will you? But he keeps ringing the bell and knocking on the door and shouting through the letterbox. And although we've told him a dozen times to get lost in the best Christian manner, he remains insistent until we get up, go downstairs, unlock and let him in and give him the food he needs. What a cheek, we might think. But that's precisely the sort of persevering prayer that Jesus commence. Notice how it goes on. Let me go now immediately to Jesus' application. Verse 9, he says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You see, you and I might have memorized the Lord's Prayer but have we memorized the lesson that follows? But Jesus didn't leave it there. We might have thought the story in Luke 11 was pretty obvious. It was direct enough, wasn't it? But Jesus goes on a little later to make the same point about persevering prayer in an even more explicit manner. Again, let me read this chunk to you from Luke 18. We heard it. Verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was, there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. 
For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. I just love that line, you know, that, that thought in his, she, she might attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You see, here's an unprincipled judge who couldn't care for anyone but himself. But because this insignificant widow kept coming to him, he eventually gave in to her request. And the point that Jesus makes is that if such an unprincipled character will respond to persevering requests, how much more will God, who is good and loving and merciful, respond to the prayers of his people? We can't get clearer than this, that the disciples of Jesus should always pray and not give up. So the Bible commands, tell us. But secondly, Bible characters show us. Bible characters show us. And there are many illustrations we could use of people persevering in prayer, but just four will suffice. The first of that, these is, is Jacob. Jacob had come to a crisis point in his life. He was returning home after many years. His brother was coming to meet him, and as far as Jacob knew, his brother was going to come and kill him because of previous antagonism. So we read this in Genesis 32, verses 22 to 24. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him, Till daybreak. Here actually is one of the most mysterious stories in the whole of the Bible. On one level, we can understand to some degree what Jacob was going through. He's ensured that all his family have safely crossed the Jabbok River and then all his possessions have crossed over as well. And there in the heavy darkness of a Middle Eastern night, Jacob is left all alone. And maybe we can imagine the thoughts that were running through his head and the anxieties and fears maybe that, that filled his heart. He knew that the following day was going to be one of the most critical days of his whole life. Esau was going to be arriving at any time. The adrenaline was flowing. Sleep was impossible. And then there's a noise, and Jacob is grabbed by someone. It might be Esau. It might be the assassin that he sent. And all Jacob can do in that pitch black darkness is fight for his life. He uses every move he knows. He uses every wrestling trick he's aware of, but he can't win. He, he can't overpower this man. He has no tricks left. All he can do is hold on for grim life. And that night, through that encounter, Jacob learns 
that actually he is powerless before the plans and purposes of God. They can't be defeated. They can't be circumvented. They can't be manipulated. God is God and before him we are as nothing. But this same God is also incredibly gracious and Jacob realizes that. So little wonder he says this in that chapter in verse 26. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And you see, it's this recognition of his own own powerlessness that is the pivotal point in Jacob's life. And I think that may be what some of you are going through right now. We've come to a time of crisis. We're, we're facing a situation that is beyond us. We're feeling helpless. We're feeling very alone, maybe. And there's nothing we can do. And however much we may rage or fight, however much we've grown stressed and anxious and maybe even ill, however many sleepless nights we've been facing, God is calling us to trust him completely, to give up on our plans and futile schemes. And he wants us to remember that he's gracious and that he loves us and that he wants the best for us and that he can be trusted absolutely. So it's time to stop fighting. It's time to admit that we're sinful failures. It's time to face up to our own weaknesses. We may be raging against God. You may be raging against God right now at this moment in this congregation. But all the time, if you're his child, he is holding on to you in love. So why don't we seek his blessing rather than fight against his plans? Why don't we face the battles of tomorrow looking to our gracious God and his almighty strength and wisdom rather than relying upon our own futile plans and ideas? Hold on to him. Cling to him. Don't let him go. Pray with perseverance. Or take the story of the capture of Jericho under Joshua. Do you think that God had got so tired, having got his people to the edge of the promised land and then over the Jordan, that that he needed the help of the Israelites to, to conquer that first major city there, Jericho? No, of course not. So why did they have to march around that city once a day for six days and then seven times on the Sabbath day? Well, it was teaching them that they needed to hang on to the promises of God. Or what about the Apostle Paul? He writes this in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. He says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We constantly pray for you, he says. And then 2 Timothy 1 verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Now, this is the immensely gifted apostle Paul. 
This is someone who's seen the Lord. This is someone who has such a grasp on doctrine and on the sovereignty and power of God. One who was used so powerfully by God. But what is he doing? He's persevering in prayer. Or the final example is Jesus himself. If anyone could claim to have ongoing fellowship with the Father, then he could. But we read this, Luke 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Or maybe you know better the incident there in Gethsemane recorded for us in Matthew 26 from verse 39. It says, going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked. Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Persevering prayer. So the Bible commands us, Bible characters show us, and thirdly and finally, Bible truths help us. Bible truths help us. You see, the Christian life begins with the recognition that actually we're spiritually bankrupt, that we are rebels, that we are stained through with sin, and that it's only through God himself that we can obtain the righteousness that we need, that that comes through Jesus. And by the way, can I just say in passing, if you are here and you're going, I really have no idea what this prayer thing is all about and why they, these Christians get so excited about it, it may well be that you haven't recognized your absolute need of God. You're, you're still doing your stuff in your own strength, thinking that you're going to find a way through life uh, and into eternity that somehow you're going to be made right with God because of what you do. My friends, that will never be the case. It is only through what God has graciously and generously and wonderfully done in the sending of Jesus Christ to be the saviour of sinners, the one who died on a cross, taking our sin and rebellion and alienation, taking that on himself so that we could be set free. And, and you need to know that. That's the only way of hope. But you see, that's not only how the Christian life begins, by repenting of our sins and putting our trust in Jesus. Actually, it's how the Christian life continues. For the follower of Jesus Christ is someone who's constantly aware of their need of God's help. See, in their own strength, they know they just can't live a Christ-centered, Christ-honoring life. And that's actually why Jesus says what he does in Matthew 7, 7, where he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. There's a rising intensity, actually, in the three verbs that Jesus uses. Ask, seek, knock. 
ask is what we commonly do when we need something or we need help. In the Greek, it has the idea of humility because it implies that someone is seeking the help of another who is greater than themselves. Ask. Friends, ask. But then, then seek involves asking, but it also adds in action. So a possible scenario in our home, I won't say it's a normal scenario, but a possible scenario in, in our home is when I'm going out and need to make sure that I have keys to get back in. Uh, but they're not in their usual place. I go to the little tub where the keys are kept, but they're not there. So I ask Kath, honey, do you know where the keys are? And she usually tells me then the general area where she may have left them. So I go seeking. I've asked, I go seeking. So I'll, I'll move stuff off our dining room table. I'll try and find her bag. And then I will undertake, with her permission, that most dangerous of tasks. Namely, rummaging through her handbag. And by the way, if that gives you the impression that I'm the orderly, tidy one and she isn't, you've got that completely wrong. I'm just, as, as I'm up here as a preacher, I can use these things by, uh, by way of illustration. See, I ask, I seek, and then the final stage is that of knocking. It, it implies asking. It assumes Seeking, but it recognizes there are times when we need to get through to someone else who can help. So to continue my illustration from home, that would be the time when I can't find the house keys, despite all my searching, so I have to go next door. And I ring the bell and I speak to my neighbor and I pick up the spare set of keys that he keeps. And I'm not going to tell you which neighbor it is that has them. You see, it's an impressive, it's a forceful build-up of words. But in our English translations, we still don't get the full force of what Jesus is saying. Firstly, in the Greek, this is an imperative. In other words, it's a command. This isn't just a, hey guys, why not try this in prayer? This is a command. Ask, seek, and knock. But secondly, it's a present imperative, which means that continual action is being commanded. So a more literal and helpful translation, I think, would be this. Keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. You see, this isn't just a one-off thing that Jesus is recommending. It's a life Time's habit. It's what we do. We, we go on asking. We go on seeking. We go on knocking. But I can imagine someone asking the question. Really, it's the big question. It's the obvious question in all of this. Well, why doesn't God answer our prayers immediately? Why do we even have to talk about this, Andy? If God is God, if God is like you say he is, all-powerful and all-loving and all-kind, why do we need to go on asking? He hears, why doesn't he just answer? Why do we have to keep persevering in prayer? Andy, why is this so important? Well, could I suggest a number of reasons? First of all, God's delay tests my seriousness. God's delay tests my seriousness. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, you will seek me and find me 
when you seek me with all your heart. So let me ask you, how serious are we about the things that we pray for? We pray for a friend's salvation. But how often? We pray for greater intimacy with God. But how often? We pray that God will change particular areas of our lives. But how often? You see, the big question is, how serious are we about these things? Are they just emotional responses that kick in on a Sunday? And it can feel like that. You're with a crowd of people and you've got a preacher. And he's going, God, persevere in prayer. And you're going, oh yeah, I must persevere in prayer. Yeah, but look, are we genuinely committed to these things in our lives? For if we persevere, it means we mean business with God. God's delay tests my seriousness. Secondly, God's delay challenges my obedience. You see, we may be praying for the salvation of a friend, but God might be requiring us to do something about it. You you just can't stay at home and say, Lord, save so-and-so, save so-and-so, and and you're not even going to talk to them or share something with them or invite them to something. We may be praying for greater intimacy with God, but there may be areas where we're not being obedient. Saying, Lord, I I want to live for you. I I want to know that greater intimacy, but I'm not going to give up the online porn. We may be praying that we'd experience a greater sense of fellowship with others, but, but God is waiting for us to see the part that we play in befriending others. It's no point. I say, oh, Lord, I I want to have more friends, but I'm not going to go and talk to anyone. They're going to come and talk to me. We may be praying that the church might be more effective within the community, but God wants us to face up to what we should be doing to that end. God's delay challenges my obedience. Fourthly, God's delay probes my understanding. God's delay probes my understanding. For he actually may already have given you the answer. And I just haven't seen how my prayers relate to what's happening in my life. John Newton, the converted slave trader who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, wrote the following poem. It is amazing. I think I've put, put it on screen. He wrote this, I ask the Lord that I may grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of the heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my goods and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. God's delay probes my understanding. It may be actually the Lord is already answering the prayer, but not in ways that you were expecting. Fourthly, God's delay builds my dependence. 
You see, if God was to answer every petition of mine as soon as uh, I prayed it, there'd be terrible dangers of both pride and poor judgment. You see, through the Bible, I understand how stupid and sinful I really am. Selfishness stains all that I do. I realize how limited my view of things really is. And I don't want to use Almighty God like some sort of genie from a magic lamp, serving me whenever I feel like it. Oh yeah, I'll have a wish now. Rather, I gladly bow to his amazing love and to his infinite wisdom. I'm so glad that he knows the beginning from the end. I'm so glad that he's in control of this world's history. And so I will keep depending on him and not on me. Fifthly, God's delay exposes my motives. You see, it may be that we're asking for things out of selfish motives or self-centered ambition. And God allows the delay of time and the repetition of prayer so that our hearts may be checked and that our selfish motives may be dealt with. Sixthly, finally in this, God's delay refines my faith. God's delay refines my faith. You see, the greatest reason may be that through persevering prayer, uh, the greatest reason that through persevering prayer, we build up our faith in God and our trust in Him. You see, when there's no immediate answer, when we pray and God is not answering, we're forced to ask certain questions. Look, does, does God really care? Can He do it? Is this in accordance with His revealed will? And at the end of the day, we have to confess that our only hope is in his unchanging character of grace and mercy. You see, should I give up praying for that family member and that unsaved colleague? No. Because he doesn't change and my hope is in him. Does the length of time make any difference? Not at all, because he doesn't change. And my increasing desperation can only ever find its answer in who he is. So let me ask us. Do we persist in our prayers for spiritual growth? Do we ask for a pure mind? Do we seek for a forgiving spirit? Do we go on knocking for the removal of an angry or critical attitude? For I fear that so often the focus of our prayers is other than it should be. Persevering prayer draws me closer to God. It increasingly fixes me on his character. It increasingly builds my faith. Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Brothers, sisters, let us pray and not give up. Let's pray now. Sovereign God, we do realize that you are in control, and we're so grateful for that relationship that you've brought so many of us here into through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we know you as our loving Heavenly Father. Thank you that you are no longer angry with us. Thank you that our sins have been dealt with. Thank you that we are now the ongoing recipients of your amazing grace and love. 
Father, remind us of these truths. Uh, for Father, in knowing this, in understanding the depth of the relationship we have with you that you've brought us into, Father, it gives us encouragement to go on praying. Forgive us, Lord, that we are so sluggish in our prayers. Father, this is the hardest thing we do in the whole of the Christian life. And so many of us here struggle so much. Father, even as I've been preaching this, I can feel such a hypocrite because of the poverty of my own prayer life. Please, Lord, by your Spirit, help us to go on praying and not give up. Trusting in who you are. For your glory we ask it. Amen.